When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus. Stay chill or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody. This is the New Books Network, and I have with me Dr. Alice Kelly. She is starting a new job at the University of Edinburgh. Uh, She has uh, published... Uh, a book called Decolonizing the Conrad Cannon with Liverpool University Press. Good morning, uh, Alice. How are you today? I'm good. Thank you, Gargi. How are you? I'm good. Thank you. Um, So uh, as always, I would like to talk about the genesis of the book. What, What were your initial ideas when you were writing it? Well, really, this book started when I was an undergraduate because the first time I ever tried to write about Joseph Conrad um, was for an essay on imperialism in my second year as an undergraduate and I couldn't I didn't have the language at that point to say the thing I was trying to say in my course essay and the frustration I felt where I was trying to make this argument that I just wasn't quite capable of at that time stayed with me and then when I was choosing um, my first piece of independent research when I was at the end of my degree and I was choosing my dissertation topic this idea came back to me and I thought well maybe I can explore this idea a little bit further um, and the that idea at the time was about the way that female characters in Heart of Darkness become linked to imperialism and synonymous with the imperial project um, that Conrad's describing in that work. Uh, And then when I came to research, (laughs) when I came to sort of explore that properly in my dissertation, I realised that that was actually an idea I'd read in somebody else's article, an amazing article by uh, Carola Kaplan written in 1995, (laughs) Um, And I started to think about, and I'd forgotten, (laughs) so I started to think about um, expanding that idea further and um, really probing it when my PhD began. This book was based on my PhD thesis. 
And it was actually over the course of working on, on a project on Joseph Conrad's female characters and imperialism as a PhD student, that the nature of the work really began to change. So it, it began as this quite theoretical project on imperial binaries, on signification, language, quite sort of abstract concepts. I was talking a lot about symbols and the uncanny. But my experiences of studying Conrad, like in public, <laughs> as a, you know, as a woman in my early 20s, the experiences I had um, in academic contexts and in public contexts, I kept finding that the way people spoke about Joseph Conrad, or the way I was allowed to speak about Joseph Conrad, was very highly policed. And people felt very strongly about, I felt I felt like there was this worry that I was going to hurt Joseph Conrad's feelings if I acknowledged the racist implications of his work, the racist language choices in Heart of Darkness, for example. And that really changed the direction of, um, of my research because I began to think about how authors like Conrad and other sort of other authors who come to be contested when we're talking about decolonizing the curriculum, the defense around authors like that is it, it changes how we approach them um, as as scholars of literature. So um, the book really started to become my thesis and then the book started to become much more about about literary scholarship as a discipline and who, who gets to say what they want to say and, and, and the conversations that we're allowed to have and not allowed to have. And, and you said something very interesting is that in, in undergraduate, you didn't have the language to talk about this. Um, what is this language that we need, that we need to talk about? Here? That's such a, good, it's such a good question because I'd never really put those two things together but I think as an undergraduate I felt I didn't understand the theories around signification and um, semiotics and postmodernism and then at the end of my PhD and now as a postdoctoral researcher I am the book became something that was about how we as as students as as inexperienced and and junior researchers engage with these authors and trying to feel like we need we need a specific language or we need a vocabulary or we need qualifications in order to engage um i talk a lot about popular culture in the book and that was one of the most striking things to me was how um Joseph Conrad's relationship with popular culture. And I think that that's, there's a sort of, um, there's an element at play always in literary scholarship where, well, I, I won't project onto everyone else, but I have noticed for myself that I feel the need to sound smart, that I feel the need to hide when I don't know something. And it's something that now more established in my career, 
I'm really noticing that I'm really challenging that and asking myself to be more curious and to just say to people, I don't, I've not read that person. I don't know that theory. Um, and to engage from this, to not sort of question my, my qualifications to engage with something with with an author like, like Conrad, for example. Um, but it's really interesting that you note that I haven't ever made that connection that I didn't feel um, when this work all began 10 years ago, that I just didn't feel like I was, um, I suppose I didn't feel smart enough to, you know, I didn't, I felt like I didn't know the theories and I, I, I didn't know what I was trying to say. Um, yeah, that's really interesting. Mm. Um, and uh, for me, the entry of the book was, was very um, interesting, so to say, and, and pleasurable to read because of the dedication. And I, I really laughed <laughs> when when I read it. And I'm just going to read it for the interest of people who would be listening to this. Is um, The dedication reads, this book is for every student who has had to expend emotional energy explaining the idea that the text they study should not hurt them. Can you tell us why you wrote that? Well, this was a conversation between me and my friend, Sarah Stewart, who I did my PhD with, who's an amazing scholar. Um, And we were talking about the way... So Heart of Darkness is often studied, in my experience, it's often taught alongside Chinua Achebe's essay um, about whether, when you very famously said that Conrad was a bloody racist, whether Conrad, there's always this sort of question of, is Conrad racist? And when you're asking students to start from that perspective of having to explain racism, Sarah and I were talking, she was sort of, she put this so brilliantly and it stayed with me for so long. The emotional labour that you put on any student of colour in the room to explain why, for example, 10 uses of the N-word in a very short novella is going to be experienced as as racism that that and, and also what that does even in in all white spaces what that sort of teaches students right from the beginning about I suppose even what what the academy is like what academia is that it's this space away from the rest of society where you have to explain why racial slurs are racist and that's intellectualized to this um quite painful degree I think and that idea of injury, that idea of thinking about, when we think about the hurt that texts can do, that words can do, that language can do, and when we don't abstract away from that or pretend that we're not capable of being hurt in an academic space, when we actually foreground that as as a possibility and as something that we want as educators to be guarding against, then I think that changes how we talk about decolonizing the curriculum and it it shifts the burden away from the you know this sense of am I going to hurt Joseph Conrad's feelings well there are people who have to study Joseph Conrad who are living and breathing and having formative experiences um, with these works so it took a long time to sort of get the wording on the dedication right so I'm really pleased that you picked up on that but I just wanted to be it was at the end of writing the whole manuscript and I just really wanted to be clear about who I'd written the book for Um, because it's not 
perfect. I had to deal with the fact that it was never going to be perfect, but I wanted it to be an attempt to say the things I've been trying to say. And I wanted to be on the side of any student who is in any educational situation where they're feeling completely underrepresented and they're feeling completely alone and they are trying to make this case of like, I am a human being in the world and you're talking as if I don't exist. I've had experiences myself like that and I felt really alone and lonely and I just wanted someone to have this book in their bag if they were in that situation, library book, obviously. I just wanted to be there (laughs) with any, you know, sad, lost undergraduate trying to explain why they felt so uncomfortable in a, in a, tutorial like that so yeah I'm glad you picked up on that um, and you, you start your book um, with a discussion about the um, the this uh, the the comments that um, oppressed ethnicities and oppressed um, um, religions they get when they contest the canon and um, when I linked it to this dedication, is it correct? Would it be correct to say that you are, in a way, uh, taking the side of those? Is is that your the aim of the book to say in this debate, this is um, this is what I stand for that we have to challenge the canon? Yeah, completely. And I think I also think I try and make the point in the book about how words like debate are. They, they frame both sides as equally viable. And I try and make the, the case in the introduction about why I just don't think that those two sides are equal. Um, and I think anybody who is invested in human rights and in the, the sort of fundamental idea that we, the fundamental ideas and values of education um would be concerned with all students feeling represented feeling heard experiencing joy in their learning and that's not going to happen when our curriculum is designed to exclude certain voices and and not others because the other point i'm really trying to make in that introduction and it's something that um many other scholars have I've made before me is that the canon that we have now isn't neutral um and you know tony morrison says it best that it's it's studiously so it's studiously constructed um that you know writers like joseph conrad also have a gender and a race so when when we teach certain authors as the sort of stalwarts of modernism if you read this list of names, you will know what modernism looks like. And it just so happens to all be white men. That's, and then we maybe read Virginia Woolf to think very briefly about women. And like, there's nothing else that could be, she represents all women. And there's absolutely nothing else in her writing that could possibly be of interest to anyone. Um, I find that's not a neutral, that's not a neutral, canon either that's not a um an objective education either yeah um and um 
if we if we could come back to Conrad and before we can think about decolonizing Conrad, um, he is um, he is a modernist writer which is not like others. He he is writing about places that Virginia Woolf, for example, is not talking about about people. Uh, Virginia Woolf is not talk, writing about. Can you give us a brief overview of? what he was writing and why is he such a problematic figure in, a, in in the way that Virginia Woolf is not? Well, I mean, I, I'm not sure Virginia Woolf is also problematic. I think when probably when you uh, study any of these authors closely, there's going to be areas of unease um, and problems. I think the reason I chose to write about Conrad is really all I can sort of speak to. I think his language is really quite extraordinary and and quite, um, I just found it really beautiful. And then I would be like really swept away in the poetry of what he was writing. And then there'd be these long extended passages of you know intensely colonial rhetoric um heart of darkness is his best known um work and it's often listed as um i mean you, you talk about you know why is why is he important and i think so much of that is not necessarily about his writing as exceptional although I think maybe I'm too close to it now to really talk about whether it's exceptional or not but so much of that is because at a certain point in time he was deemed exceptional and therefore he's been added to reading lists he's now you know the the heart of darkness is often on lists of 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 works that students should have read before they get to university so he's like a threshold that he is an essential author that you have to engage with and when we sort of you know when you're asking me why is that I find that really hard to answer without thinking about all the ways in which he's been valorized to be this sort of I mean I call him an author guard after um Barthes but um as you say, to go back to your question about the places he was writing about and the things that he was writing about, um, Heart of Darkness is his most well-known uh, work, and that's set in the Belgian Congo. But the he wrote a lot about the Malay archipelago, and that's what I have written about in my book. I've also written about his um, short story based in the Pacific, called The Planter of Malata, elsewhere. Um, And what interested me about the way he wrote about the Malay archipelago, it's a really rich area of Conrad scholarship anyway, um, in in the work that previous scholars have done, because it was an area that contained a lot of contested um, colonial politics and intrigue. And so you get a real sense of the the different ways that he that Conrad wrote about different European colonial powers um, and British powers were often um, not criticised to the same degree as others. So um, 
it's a very his his melee fiction i find is full of the same contradictions and um sort of collapsing binaries that many people find in heart of darkness but the novels i chose to write about have very prominent female characters and i think it's more engaging to think about and to read conrad writing about imperialism from the perspective of people on the receiving end of the characters on the receiving end of imperial violence rather than to continually revisit these novels where he's written about imperialism from the perspective of those feeling a bit guilty about enacting imperial violence or you know sort of worried about um about about the the morals of that i find um the the linger trilogy that i write about in this book to be much more engaging because the the stakes are so much higher for these characters and the things they're going through are um so challenging yeah and and what does it mean what does it mean to decolonize or decolonizing conrad because even if it, it cannot be complete but what is this project entail for this trilogy well the the book is called decolonizing the conrad canon because and i make a point in my very first paragraph i'm not trying to decolonize conrad because his name is always going to be synonymous with with colonial literature and with colonial literary scholarship as actually as well the colonial literary canon but it's called the conrad canon because i use a formulation from an amazing um, fantasy scholar, Abigail de Kosnick, who talks about in her book, Rogue Archives, how, um, how sort of cultural canons are built from these much wider uh, metaphorical cultural archives, and that certain things are withdrawn from the metaphorical archive, certain texts, certain adaptations of a text, are become play a huge role in our culture and then maybe other texts associated with those primary ones with those most well-known ones are forgotten and the same texts get recirculated over and over again and they form the canon but elsewhere so i'm looking at the conrad canon those texts that are the most well-known, the most often on reading lists, but you've got the Conrad archive, that's this much more um, broad metaphorical archive of all the things he ever wrote. And within that wider archive, you have um, a much bigger variety of perspectives. You have these these moments that I call breathing spaces that challenge the, the dense colonial rhetoric of, the, of, of his novels. Um, and then from that archive, this is this is how de Kosnick's work is so relevant to fan studies. Uh, adapters, both unofficial and official, paid and unpaid, will add their own adaptations, um, what I call afterlives in the book, their own renderings of the story, and. Um, you can create a different kind of canon. You can create a different kind of reading list out of what you choose to withdraw and play with in the archive. Yes. Um, and I 
read your book as an answer to how can uh, this be done? How can the canon be decolonized? Um, but for me, there there is this big question as as an Indian of why this is relevant uh, and not just relevant for the literary critics, but for uh, for the lack of a better phrasing is like why is this important for the society post the empire i mean why is it necessary for people in congo or people in the malay archipelago what why is this project important for them well as the dedication shows i think this is why i spent so much time on the dedication i think the thing i'm engaging with most in this book is the coloniality that's still at play in British culture. So in answer to your question about why it's relevant for people in Democratic Republic of Congo, or why it's relevant for anyone in the Malay Archipelago now, I don't know how relevant um, Joseph Conrad is. I know that his legacy in British culture, in in British literary culture, is, as I said, to be positioned as one of these sort of neutral figures of modernism, and that if you can understand his literary aesthetics, then you have the the key to, he's one of many, but you you have the key to the insight of the sort of one of the most important periods we are told of um, of all literature. So I think the reason it's important um, to be actively engaged in decolonizing in a, in a decolonial approach to our education and to the works we're reading, the reason it's so significant is because we still live in a colonial and neo-colonial world. I mean, literally, in some cases, but also this is what I mean about when I when I went out into the world studying Joseph Conrad, you know, reading Conrad's books in cafes, for the first time in my life, people said very casually and extremely racist things in conversation. I think that's probably a symptom of my of my privilege and my sheltered upbringing. But it was a real eye-opener for me that people thought that the language people thought was okay to use in front of me changed because I was reading a Joseph Conrad novel it was like I will welcome all of your horrible racist ideas please come and share them with me while I'm trying to meet my friend for coffee and that shocked me that really really shocked me and it made me realize that I'm not sure if I actually wrote this in the book, but I had this feeling that it's like, well, when we're talking about Joseph Conrad, anything, you know, the sort of level of decency and respect changes even. And really your question is like the whole heart of the matter. And I'm I'm not sure that I answer it in the book and I'm not sure I'll ever answer it, but it was such an, it was such a, an awakening for me about and this was also happening around the time of, of the Brexit referendum and Donald Trump getting elected and so it was a real like disenfranchising moment of understanding that I'd, a product of 
British 90s culture and being raised to believe that we're on this like upward incline of progress and liberty and around the same time I, I was really really awakened to the reality of the situation was which is that there's a lot of violence and um, pain underpinning cultural values that are normalized and naturalized so I don't I can't answer how important it is I think that would be another project entirely it's actually similar to the work I'm about to be doing at Edinburgh um, I can't answer how relevant that is to people in the Congo or people in the Malay archipelago but I know how relevant it's been for me you know just um, and maybe that maybe that's all academic writing ever is as well just answering our own existential crises <laughs> no I think no I think it's equally important it's is that since, I mean, it's it may be my personal prejudice because I'm looking from that angle, I wanted to see if if you also have done that. But no, I think your project is completely relevant. It's It does not in any way undermine it. Um, and also, um, I just sort of wanted to me- make the point that I sort of don't think it is. Like, I there's a part of me where I don't really want this to be relevant because I don't want in 10 years for us to have the same the same the same approach to literary scholarship in the UK where it's like this is the mainstream and then on the fringe we're going to bring in these reading approaches where we have to think about like a broader humanity and we have to think about being inclusive and we have to think about equality I want that to be so mainstream and focused that this book doesn't have a huge longevity and a huge uh, shelf life. I wrote in the conclusion that I don't think Conrad does need to be on a central reading lists. I think there are lots of ways if you do feel that you need to teach Conrad to do it in a more inclusive way. And those are the things I put forward in the book. But this is a short term proposition to say that there is no author on our reading list who you as a 21st century educator cannot be engaging with in more inclusive terms that serve and represent the potential of your student body um, in a much in a much broader and more inclusive way Um, that even there are ways of finding resonance feminist queer decolonial pockets of resistance in even the most seemingly colonial, patriarchal, heteronormative texts. Yeah. And um, let's now come to the question of how. And two of the concept tools that you have already mentioned, one is the afterlife and the other is the breathing space. Can you give an example of these two? So the breathing space example that I always think of first, it's really only one sentence in The Rescue, um, which is a novel from 1920 that Conrad wrote. Um, And there's a lot of intrigue and politics and kidnapping in that novel. But there's this one moment where the two female characters meet Edith Travers, who is a, I mean, I like to think of um, the rescue, I call it Mrs. Dalloway on a boat, because there are these sort of 
very sapphic moments. But there's one moment where uh, English aristocracy, white Mrs. Travers, Edith Travers, meets the Malay princess Imida. And they have this grip of an intimate contact. They have this moment. And it's really just those, I mean, it's not even a sentence, the grip of an intimate contact. And it stayed with me, this sentence. And I thought, I was like, wow, this is like, <laughs> this is so homoerotic and something amazing is going to happen next. And then nothing happens. They just like meet and stare at each other. And it's all very intense. And then they move away. And it really struck me. And I don't think that they don't really, you know, nothing really comes of this moment. And there isn't really a, lovely plot at the end where they skip off on their boat together they have a a sort of abstracted dynamic throughout the novel because they're apart for most of it and this isn't something this isn't a relationship that much conrad scholarship has been devoted to and certainly not through a queer reading but for me that moment that little second just completely disrupted my reading experience and it changed how I engaged with the rest of the novel and it always changes when I reread it so I started to think about in the other novels I was looking at which are part of this Thinker trilogy and Outcast of the Islands and Almeida's Folly the breathing spaces there are much much more dramatic because you'll have chapters from the perspective of these white male colonial agents and they will be sort of expounding their racial hatred and then there'll be a sort of moment where Aisa who's the female character in Anarchist of the Islands for example will turn around and offer this incredible diatribe it's just like a mic drop moment um so I I mean I could have called it mic drop moments but I, I felt like Breathing Spaces really spoke to the idea of what happens when we pause what happens in these gaps in in a text, in a media property as well. Um, I've done a lot of work on fandom and breathing spaces, I think, articulate. It's a good term for how sometimes, you know, when watching a TV show, there are certain moments that just stay with us that aren't, we're told aren't relevant to the plot, but they become so relevant to us and to our experience of engaging with them. So this idea of a moment where you take a breath and there's just an infusion of something else in the text. Um, and I, I also was thinking about this because um, Conrad is described, as I write about in the book, in one of the Norton critical editions of Heart of Darkness, the, the novel is described as being part of the cultural air we breathe. And so I was thinking about this metaphor of the colonial canon as something that we inhale without sort of our consent really and and, um, how that changes our path through the world. And I was thinking about this in relation to these resistant pockets, these moments of protest in the novels as you, there's a sort of sense of peace, there's a sort of sense of recuperation that's possible when you, hear something different to the dominant discourse of colonialism and patriarchy and heteronormativity. And um, 
I, I think a good example of afterlives would be the, the trash Conrad because this this was a pleasure to read um, <laughs> and how um, the cheap paperback editions can can help us challenge the the canonical status of the author. Is, was that your intention? Is oh, my definitely. Reading? Yeah, I was. I was. I've nearly changed it so many times because I thought that's just a bit too controversial. Because this is what I mean about how the policing around author figures like Joseph Conrad, there are things you feel like you cannot say. And I felt like if I if I say Conrad is trash, then I am just inviting a wall of <laughs> of criticism from um, certain corners of literary scholarship. But that made me all the more determined to think about that and to um, to theorize Conrad in relation to, popular culture theories of and queer theories of reclaiming ephemera and reclaiming um, what we cast off as a culture as unworthy. And I was really interested. Um, I mean, I, I really love the work of uh, David M. Earle, who's a Conrad scholar who looks at, um, I think he calls it street level Conrad, um, rather than today's Conrad industry, which I, I, I just really love. The idea of a a Conrad industry, and when you study Conrad and you look at how expensive the textual editions are of you know the critical editions of his work, it is an industry. Um, but that in Conrad's own time and in the early early twentieth century, his work was often published in these very popular and populist contexts, and that I think really changes how we engage with an author like Conrad um, because the other thing is Conrad scholarship does talk about how Conrad has a relationship in his work with with romance tropes with perhaps spy fiction obviously um, but there's always the sense that Conrad was doing something very satiric and genius that no one else could possibly emulate and that anybody who engaged with the romance plot of some of his novels, for example, was just reading it wrong. That actually there was some really clever hidden message that we as literary critics are uniquely endowed to unpick and, and discover. And the idea of all these spaces where Conrad was actually published in really cheap covers. Um, so for example, uh, in the second chapter, I talk about how the rescue was serialized in a magazine called the London called London Water. Um, and then in chapter four, Trash Conrad, I talk about when Conrad's novels were published as cheap pulp paperback mass market editions and how the covers of those works depicted um, the character Aisa in an outcast of the islands. That um, when we find Conrad in these in these contexts, I think that really does change how we, I mean, I know you're not supposed to judge a book by its cover, but that, that does change how we would engage with the, the text beneath. You know, there's a difference between you're presented with the same text, the same text, say, of Heart of Darkness, and you either find it in the, the Signet edition, I think it is, from 1950, where you've got a topless woman on the cover, a topless black woman, a topless white man, or is she, I've got it here somewhere, but anyway, um, there's a lot of nudity and um, hints of like sort of exoticized salacious content. And then 
you're presented with the same text in the non-critical edition where it's framed with academic essays and um, <laughs> cultural history, things like that. Um, but the text remains the same. The words remain the same. But I think that that absolutely does shape how how we engage with how, how we what we are allowed to think and feel about the words that we're reading um yeah yeah and and you have talked a little bit uh, already in this but i would really um stress on this question is what do you expect your readers to take from this book what's one thing oh. you would really want them to focus on good question well, the thing I'd really like to happen is, I mean, I think the thing I'd ultimately like to happen is for Conrad, not to, for nobody to be like an essential, you have to have read this dead white man, otherwise you're not getting on our literature programme. Um, but I think short term, I, I think we can teach, instead of Heart of Darkness and Lord Jim, um, being on reading lists, I would like to see what I term the Nina trilogy, um, which is a trilogy. Obviously, in the in the book I'm looking at, the Lingard trilogy, which is three novels named after the car- the character Captain Tom Lingard, um, and it's structured around him. But there are also there's also one character who recurs from... So the Linker trilogy, just for context, is the first two novels Conrad wrote, Almea's Folly and Outcast of the Islands. And then much later, um, towards the end of his writing career, he wrote The Rescue, which is a backstory. And he'd been trying to write it for like his whole um, life as an author. So the the trilogy spans his his writing life and has been disavowed as being a project of his artistic immaturity um, or as being sort of waning populist fodder. Uh, but as I said, it also coincidentally happens to be the work that contains the some of the richest female characters. Um, and in the Linga trilogy, there is also another character who recurs, which is the character of Nina Almeida, who is the central female character in Conrad's first novel, Almeida's Folly. And in the book, I look at what I term the Nina trilogy, which is Almeida's Folly, where she's the main character, and Outcast of the Islands, where she's a small child, and then um, the Chantal Ackerman film adaptation of Almeida's Folly, La Folly Almeida, um, where, where Nina is played, I think, beautifully by Aurora Marion and uh, I argue that this trilogy of texts, uh, An Outcast of the Islands, Almeida's Folly and the the Folly Almeida adaptation would be a really great collection to have on any reading list where you, if, if the work of Joseph Conrad has to be something, that if you feel like students just aren't going to get a real qualification if they haven't read Joseph Conrad, then this would be a way of teaching his work in a 21st century context in an inclusive way that foregrounds the experiences of women of colour, of queer energies in texts as well, because there's a as I argue in the book, there's a real queer subplot that runs throughout Almeida's Folly. So I would really love to see Almeida's Folly 
reclaimed in that way. And particularly, I think the idea of teaching it alongside its adaptation, I think that is the, that's always how I like to teach. And I think that's the future of, of literary scholarship is to see texts in the context of their afterlives. And I hope you're successful. I know your book was published in January, but um, I hope you're really successful in in, in your aims. Thank you. Uh, so, so last question before we end: uh, What are you working on uh, now? What well, more? I so I've just I've started a new job this week actually at the University of Edinburgh on a project called Remediating Stevenson, um, and it's looking at Robert Louis Stevenson's. Pacific fiction and thinking about how we can decolonize his work through graphic adaptation and uh, arts education. It's a really amazing project led by uh, Michelle Kewen, who is actually my PhD supervisor. Um, so that's really exciting and obviously feels like an interesting way for me to take what I've done with Joseph Conrad further um, into another direction but before that and as I write about a lot in in the book I since finishing my PhD have been researching femme slash fan fiction which is for anyone who doesn't know uh, fan fiction is where people write their own stories based on pre-existing media characters characters from pre-existing media properties and femme slash is where there's a focus on lesbian, bisexual, and queer female relationships. Um, And that work has really infused um, all my literary research, but particularly it runs throughout decolonizing the Conrad canon. I realized as I was rewriting certain passages and turning it into a book, I realized, oh, I've been writing femme slash fan fiction about the rescue, for example. You know, this is this is where it comes from. This is what I was trying to do um, this whole time. So I'm really excited because that research um, is going to form my next book, which is under contract with Blinthrough Academic, which is about the Swan Queen fandom from the TV show Once Upon a Time. So it sounds like a very different project, but they both share this emphasis on adaptation, on character, the centrality of character, and on the things that open up through queer readings and through looking at a text with uh, 21st century eyes, as I like to say. So, yeah, it's a... lots of different exciting things happening that I think all kind of come together (laughs) hopefully yeah I hope you um the best for your future projects thank you thank you so much thank thanks for being here oh this is brilliant thank you it's been amazing